The following program is presented by the National Committee on United States-China Relations, www.ncuscr.org. When I first started out in, in radio, one of my mentors, uh, Phil Ponce of Chicago Public Television, uh, he said, well, when you stand in front of the microphone, you need to close your eyes and imagine you're speaking to somebody who is interested in everything you say. <laughs> Just imagine such a person exists. <laughs> um, and, and that's what I, what I still do, so it's, it's great to have the actual people here uh, to, to talk to. Um, so I'm not going to kind of lead you on this forced march chapter and verse through my family history. It's not that interesting. Um, but you know, I'll, I'll, I'll kind of tell a few stories here and there that hopefully illuminate the, uh, kind of the big ideas and big takeaways that I uh, that, that I have um, about China. My views have changed a little bit since I pursued this book project, and it, and it has been five years, so I've had a long time to think uh, as I've gone through this. The project did start out with some kind of big questions, longer questions about how the China of today got here, um, and that led me down a number of paths uh, into my own family history, some holes in the family history. Um, and then I kept coming back to, well, what, is this, uh, what does this tell me about the Chinese people and the welfare and about China? So um, I'll, I'll uh, kind of you know, go from these big questions to some specifics and then back out. In the end, I'll have a couple reflections about China today, uh, but really look forward to your questions. I have a few PowerPoint slides, but um, keep in mind this is from a radio person. <laughs> so, um, you know, face for radio, PowerPoint for radio. If I'd known that I was, the book was actually going to come to fruition and, and I was going to do a PowerPoint presentation, I would have taken some kind of pictures. <laughs> um, so, uh, I'll kind of sit here. I've been advised that I'm not supposed to turn my back on the audience. So, uh, everyone may raise their hand here. How many of you have been inside the bottle opener? Most of you here. When I first got to China permanently in 2006 for Marketplace, um, I ended up making a, a mistake. I fell into this China trap of, uh, of thinking this was kind of the picture of real China. I fell into this instant China trap. When I first got there, a, a banker said, I, you know, I, I've seen you people come and go. And you get the skyscraper syndrome. You come and get this distorted, you look up to the sky and you get this distorted image of what China is like and you have no idea what goes on inside the buildings, you don't know about how well the building is managed, you don't know about human talent inside the building, uh, and you think it's just this kind of right now story. Um, and I, I think I had some of that, this notion that China is this big bang immediate story. And as a business and economics reporter, I kept looking at you know, what was happening things were happening so quickly in real time that there wasn't enough, enough time to kind of pull back the frame and understand the broader picture of what was happening. For the first full year, I was in 2007, the, the, uh, by the official measurements, the economy grew at 14.2%, uh, according to the World Bank. So it was just kind of going into overdrive, and I lost um, perspective. And I think there are a lot of China traps we fall into with these kind of China bumper stickers that help us understand the story, but they oversimplify the story. Resurgent China, over-leveraged China, right? there's nationalist China, there's aggrieved China, 
polluted China. You can you know frame it however you will. I think a lot of us uh, fall into the, uh, the the problem of, of, of the instant China, the Big Bang idea that China just came about in, in a generation. Because that's what you hear. Where you go in the street and you ask people how did your life turn out the way it was, most people start at reform and opening in the late 70s and early 80s. Um, and that's much of the story. Um, one of my first profiles there is kind of the story most reporters do when they first go. You, you, you follow a migrant worker around and, and tell the urbanization story through him or her. So I went to, uh, to Western China, to Sichuan province, and uh, found a guy who was actually from Deng Xiaoping's village. And he was a migrant worker, went to the city of Chongqing and became a porter. Right? He carried the bamboo pole around for people and, and uh, made a few pennies here and there. But the great, the great part of the story is when you go back to the village with one of these people and realize what he's built back in, in the village. He, he was a very modest, kind of quiet guy carrying things around in the big city. Then when he, when he back to the, went back to the village, he was the big man on campus. Right? He, he was the man who went to the city and made good. And he took me to a neighbor's house where we were having this lunch. And this neighbor had this gigantic wok in this kitchen, right? And um, I said, I've never seen a wok that big before. And the, the migrant guy said, mine's bigger. <laughs> um, and and uh, again, kind of this immediate story. So that, that was one thing that led me down after I left China to say, I don't have a basic enough understanding of the longer story to try to understand this history. Um, I also had a, a kind of a personal mission when I was uh, when I was working on this. Many of you has, have seen this too. How many of you have been in the lobby of the old Hong Kong Shanghai Bank on the Bund? So one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, a lot, a lot of you. And you may know the story that is, you know, after liberation, um, well, it's, it's interesting to look at it for uh, a little bit at these, at these mosaics. Each of these tiles depicts one of the branches of what was in the Hong Kong Shanghai Bank because this is the Shanghai headquarters of the bank. So one image is New York, the New York branch over here, and Tokyo over there, and Shanghai on the left, and London on the right. This um, kind of previous era of globalization that Shanghai was at the, at the center of. And then after liberation, when the communists came and uh, the framing of the story didn't suit the times, as the story goes, it was plastered over. But it wasn't destroyed, so the tiles weren't chiseled off. And as the story goes, an enterprising architect decided to plaster it over, just in case the day might come that the history underneath could be uncovered, and that day, of course, did come. I went here on the advice of my assistant in Shanghai soon before I left, because um, she said, you know, you got to see this. You've lived here, and you haven't even been there yet. And as I walked out, I started thinking, you know, I know there's a lot of my own family story that's actually still underneath, too. It just needs to... It's still underneath there, waiting to be kind of rubbed away a little bit uh, to, to tell the story. So those two kind of questions, my big China questions and my family questions, came together in this, in this book project. And the basic framing of the book is it, it um, tells a longer view of China, how China got here through five people across five generations in my family tree. And in the case of my family, and I'm sure with 
a number of people around this table, they were these outward-looking Chinese nationals uh, who connected with the ideas of the outside world, uh, went abroad perhaps. When China's doors were open, they were the opportunists. They had great opportunities. When China's doors were closed, they became the traitors and the scapegoats. Um, and then when the doors came open again, they saw opportunity again. So it tries to tell a story not through you know, the, the outsider's view of how China got here, and not, not the full insider's view either, but the view of these cultural hybrids, uh, these interesting uh, people in my family, but I think more importantly, they're uh, part of you know, what some, some economic historians call these early kind of enlightenment days for China. Uh, and, and, and a bit of an undertold story as I, as I think about it. So um, there are, I'm going to tell you briefly about three of the characters in the book. Um, the first is my great-grandfather, uh, who, who has the same surname as mine. Um, so the Tong family village on my father's side is along uh, the Grand Canal in northern Jiangsu province. And Maybe the same hands will go up. How many of you have kind of spent any time along the Grand Canal? A few of you, yeah. Um, so this, like the canals in the States, they were very important at a certain period of time. Got superseded by technology. Um, so the heyday of the Tong village along this place passed uh, quite a while ago, before my great-grandfather was born. Uh, this is in northern Jiangsu province, what they call Subei. And when you're from Subei, the nearest city is, is Huayan, and when you tell people you're from around there, two things predictably happen. First of all, they say, oh, Huayan, that's where the old premier is from. Don't I from there, you know? And the second thing that happens is the conversation stops, because there's nothing else redeeming to say really about that part of, of uh, northern Jiangsu province. It, it has flooded over repeatedly uh, in time. The the migrants who went from that part of Jiangsu province to Shanghai, they were some of the late migrants since they lived in the worst part of town. They weren't the barbers, they weren't the knife sharpeners, they weren't the bankers. You know, they were fighting for the, you know, to carry the night soil uh, uh, through the town. So um, it's that kind of a place. And my father and I went there and um, took a full day to find the village. We, we only had this pre-1949 name of the village uh, that my dad had from a, a distant relative. And so we were armed with this name that meant nothing to anybody we talked to. That the police didn't know, the local government didn't know. We, we rented a van with a driver and started stopping people on the street and they didn't, nobody knew. Uh, and so we spent a day just kind of going up to people and all the conversations ended with Taichu. Right? It's not very clear. I don't know. Um, it's an all-purpose kind of conversation stopper. Right? When people talk for a little bit and they say that because either they don't really know the answer or they don't want to tell you the answer or they might get in trouble for telling you the answer. Either way, um, we, we struggled to find it. Until we came across uh, my, my assistant in China. So this is before smartphones and this is before GPS and usable maps in China. 2009, and she found something on the Chinese internet and said, well, I think this village is near this town that I can direct you to. So we found this town, and we ended up asking somebody who said, yeah, okay, I know a guy uh, who, might, who might 
who might have heard of this before because he's right. So, so first guy gets into the van, and then we go find his friend, right? And, and the guy says, yeah, I think you heard it before, but I know a guy. So he gets into the van, and we picked up two more people, and the last person changes the whole dynamic of the van because the last person who gets in silences the van because he's the party secretary. <laughs> and, and everyone knows that this is the, oh, this is the canal again, so that's the party secretary. You know, with the, <laughs> the members only kind of jacket there. <laughs> and um, he knew where it was. And he, he takes us to this, this small village that looks like a lot of places in the world that are emptying out, whose best days are past it. Um, there is a, you know, there's a, there's a creek that has seen better days and the path, kind of this old worn path. Um, and so these Americans come traipsing down here, right? That's my mom with me and those, my kids are so young back then. Um, and we, we realized, so the first mistake we made, I was with my dad and he said, he introduced himself uh, and he asked them what their name was. And the first guy who comes to us says, well, everybody has the same last name, <laughs> duh. Which is unusual because our family name is very unusual. It means child in Chinese. So uh, it, it's, it, it doesn't, um, you don't run into to many of them. And the story that we got there was not exactly the real story of what happened in the village. So what the people told us were, so this is, a, this is again, my family on the left here. Uh, and there were two kids, about 100 adults and two kids there, like a lot of Chinese villages. And my father's in the middle of that picture there. And we in started the in the red there. Yeah, and he's um, asking them about the story. And it sounds really compelling, except it wasn't the, it wasn't the real story. Uh, they started talking about my great-grandfather, who was the first one out of the village. and. The true part was that he he was a scholar and he went to study in Japan at the end of the 1800s. So this history is familiar to many of you. It's the, toward the end of the Qing Dynasty. The central government, the uh, imperial Chinese government is really weak. And um, in this time, a lot of leading scholars either got forced out or went to Japan, where the leading ideas of modernity, industrial modernity, um, where they were introduced to these isms. Darwinism, uh, scientism, feminism, Marxism, rule of law, globalization, these basic concepts. Uh, and, and these, so my great grandfather studied law in Japan. And so this part of the story still kind of checks out. And uh, it's also true that he went to Japan and he married a Japanese wife, which came as a great surprise to his Chinese wife back in the village when he got back to her. Um, what wasn't true was what uh, the smallest man in the village, poorest man in the village, he's our closest relative there. And after we had lunch there, uh, when this gentleman wasn't even invited to the lunch, so it was a little odd, he said, well, when you come back, you eat at my house, and I'll tell you the real story. And, and what happened was, the, um, after, the, after the, the liberation, the people on kind of our side of the village, who were the scholars and uh, um, more educated people, the fortunes flipped, and and the the, uh, the farmers on the other side of the village 
they had the power structure, and then the Tongs who were closest to us, actually they got the worst plot of land, they became the poorest, they didn't get out, they didn't have any opportunities. And, and this cousin, uh, the tragedy of his story was um, he was punished during the Cultural Revolution because there was a letter that they had on file. And so there were members of my family who had gotten out to Taiwan. So he had these overseas relations. <coughs> he was stained by those associations. Uh, so, you know, this, this, uh, these cultural revolution um, issues and political problems that people had, <coughs> that's still happening today in the, in the Tong family village. Um, the big takeaway that I have from, uh, from, his, from his life is what I think sometimes we forget, what I, you know, I was a history minor in college, but I forgot that, you know, this turn of the century period was what, uh, you know, historian Arnie Westhead calls China's great encounter with the modern world. So a lot of these early seeds that were sprinkled on, on Chinese soil were, were, were global ideas that came from, from the outside that far preceded, uh, that far preceded reform and opening, that far preceded liberation. Um, so it's a, it's a longer, more global story in origins. Um, there are American roots to the story, and those are part of my maternal grandmother's story. I think I have a picture over here. Oh, this is my great-grandfather, the one who went to Japan, and we, we found a few kind of documents uh, like this. Um, so my maternal grandmother, she's not in there, but she, in 1911, someone decided that she was going to have her feet unbound, and that she was going to be taken to kind of middle of nowhere China, uh, Jiangxi province, to study at a school run by American missionary women. And this is for the Baldwin School for Girls. So she was part of this early generation uh, who, who had the ability to read and to run in China. And I didn't hear much about her at the family table either until I asked my, my aunt, my mom's sister, and she said, oh, we have all these letters that she, that she received from her American teachers. So she chronicled her life in these letters with American teachers there. So all the teachers, all the letters she received, she kept her whole life. And all the letters she sent uh, have been preserved for these miraculous reasons in American archives. So we were able to kind of put together a bunch of her, her life. Um, and what we learned is um, there's a great book in, in this field called Women in the Chinese Enlightenment. It, the, the book has been out for, for a while. But it makes the case that some of the early breakthroughs uh, in, in women's rights came right around this era of uh, a lot of these, these girls went on to uh, study internationally. They went on to, to build schools. In the official history, a lot of the times they've been kind of nudged out of the frame because, again, they had political problems that weren't consistent with the, you know, with the government at the time. Um, but these were, there's a great economic historian at the University of Pittsburgh named Tom Rossi, and a lot of you know him or have heard of him, and he talks about these antecedents of human capital. And when he kind of looks back to the antecedents of China today, um, these are some of the, the roots <coughs> that, he, that he talks about, some of these global roots, these islands of modernity, as, uh, as some other describe the story. Um, in the case of my grandmother, uh, she always wanted to come to America because she heard about it so much from her teachers. Uh, she, she ended up not making it. 
Um, she had some illnesses, and then her father, her father died during the Northern Expedition in 1926. It was a siege of her, her uh, hometown of uh, Wuchang, one of the three cities in Wuhan. This 40-day siege, and he died. And, and so her, her, um, the most important male in her family, she lost him at an early age. And then in 1931, the Great Flood, the by most by most modern <coughs> records, the worst flood in, in modern times, kind of washed her out of her city. And then she went to Shanghai to, uh, to begin a school. Um, in the end, she did not make it to the United States. Uh, and um, her husband, and we can talk about this uh, a little bit later on, was um, uh, died as a political prisoner. He was arrested and convicted as a collaborator for the Japanese occupation. Um, and so um, a lot of this generation made it. And that's, that's, I think, an important part of the story. They made it outside, and they brought these, um, these ideas and, and this education back to China in this important period. Uh, in her case, uh, she, she was not able to, to make it. Um, the, oh, these are some of the letters that we found. So um, for those of us whose children, yeah, don't take cursive anymore. Uh, handwriting was great. She was 18 at the time. And we also found an audio tape of her voice uh, talking when she was interviewed. So that was a great, uh, a great find. And living in Baoding, right? Uh, that's right. That's where the uh, that's where the school uh, was initially. Uh, in, and then they moved to another part of the French concession. Um, and now the school is, uh, as best we can tell, is in control of. Um, um, Profiteers in the People's Liberation Army. So the PLA took over the building, uh, but they rented out 90% of it on the side, kind of um, uh, profiting off, off the property uh, that way. Um, I, I, I just want to tell you one, one, one last um, story of when China's doors closed. Um, in 1949, uh, there was a 10-year-old boy who with his father kind of got out of China miraculously on. There were two boats that were taking the people from the losing side of the Chinese Civil War, uh, the Kuomintang over to Taiwan. And this little boy and his father got on the boat that didn't sink. So the one that did, I didn't know the story at all. Uh, it had casualties on the border of the Titanic when it sank. And the next boat that went over uh, that got to Taiwan was the one my father was on. Um, the brother who got left behind is my uncle, and there's a chapter in the book about, about his story. And to me, it's a story of great redemption. Um, I spent a lot of time uh, understanding his story. You may, have, you may have spoken to people in China who tell you something like, uh, you know, there's no point in telling the story of suffering. Everybody has this story. What's the point of kind of understanding it? You know, there's not necessarily a compulsion to, to want to go back and revisit these things. And so I spent hours squeezing it out of him because I said, this is new to me. And I wanted to know about, about the famine in the late 50s and early 60s and, and how, you know, how, how they scraped off the tree bark, how they prepared it to eat. And the day he got lucky and found a frog on the way back from school and you know, how he survived that, how uh, he and his mother survived the Cultural Revolution even though they had these overseas relationships. So he was the outward-looking Chinese person, uh, son of intellectuals, um, 
who was, you know, as he put it, he was always in the back of the line. In school, uh, in the Cultural Revolution, he was sent to the countryside for a full decade. Um, the Great Redemption is when China brought the schools back and brought the college entrance examination back. Uh, he's 30 years old. Right? There's 10 years worth of students waiting to take this test. And he aces it. And he becomes a professor, an engineering professor, and he becomes a consultant. Uh, one of his clients is the contract factory of Black & Decker in the early 80s. So the, the doors open, and he once again sees opportunity uh, in, in this time. He didn't want me to write the story in the book. Um, he said, I only want you to write the glorious books. And I said, I've spent like 25 hours with you at your kitchen table. I, this is a great story of redemption. Why don't you want me to tell the story? And he said, well, um, you know, parts of it are shameful and embarrassing. And, and I said, well, this book is going to be in English. You know, it, it may never be read in China. And he said, well, I have friends in America. <laughs> and I said, your friends, how many friends do you have in America? Six. <laughs> so we went around and around, and in the end, um, this is the challenge of kind of writing about your family. Um, I, I, uh, I said, well, you know, this is an important story to tell. Um, he, he changed his surname in the course of his life, so I decided I was going to use his, uh, uh, the name Tong, which he doesn't use anymore, so to give him a little bit of, uh, to give him a little bit of privacy, but, um, you know, People in my generation, it's pretty hard to have a kind of head-on argument with your uncle in your second language. <laughs> but uh, it's a great story, and I'm glad it made it into the, uh, into the book. So finally, just a couple takeaways, kind of big takeaways. And I'll, some of these are, are uh, <coughs> kind of repeating these important points. Um, we often think about history as these big turning points, this kind of rupture school of history. Um, and those are important, and those those also kind of serve the, the kind of the winners in history when they write it or, or get to write it or rewrite it. Um, there's a quieter school in history, I think, that thinks more about continuities uh, rather than just ruptures and big turning points. And um, so I, I think a lot of the quieter part, the less told part of the Chinese stories, is these early continuities. A lot of the pre-communist days are just. Um, set to the side as this century or two accumulation. But a lot of important things happen at this time. Uh, uh, so uh, so that, that's one way I think about China a little bit differently. Uh, I do think uh, some of the roots are more global, um, and in some cases American to it. So to be sure, the Communist Party in my view deserves a lot of credit for what China is now. But it's not entirely a Communist Party story. Um, uh, I think the one big lesson about globalization is I, I think I made the same mistake that my grandmother made years ago is when she was in Shanghai in the, uh, in the 30s and 40s, I think she and her husband kind of, you know, always bet that the doors would stay open and, uh, and that um, they would always be able to kind of go and come back and, and uh, globalization would keep going in a single direction. And they, of course, were wrong. And uh, you know, I, I made the same, same mistake in my adult life when I was in college. The, the Berlin Wall fell, and then at this great you know European EU experiment and integration happened, and it seemed like globalization was it, it only went in one direction. 
you know, as it, because it's a great economic idea, it deserves to happen in reality. And of course, you know, I was wrong too. Um, and I think that is kind of a big long lesson sometimes when you think that, oh, the drug reviews are never going to come back up. Uh, and sometimes, of course, they do. And finally, um, uh, I'm sure a lot of you have seen this, you know, it's called the elephant chart. It's been around for a couple of years now about you know, what economists talk, think of as a great convergence uh, in, in the world. That is, um, you know, during the Industrial Revolution, there was a big divergence where the, you know, the wealthiest countries, uh, the, the gap between the wealthiest and the rest of the world was pretty large. And we've seen this converging coming back. You know, the Nobel economist Michael Spence talks about this. A lot of economic historians talk about this. This is a chart from Branko Milanovic, former World Bank economist. He's now with the City University of New York here. And it kind of plots the, the income around the world and what's happened to incomes in the last, uh, since, since uh, 1988. And, and what you see is the important part uh, for this is the big winners are at point A, kind of at the top of the, at the, top of the elephant there. And those are the people in the world at around the 50% distribution uh, point in income. And that's middle class India, middle class China. So um, we kind of know this, we know the numbers, and um, you know, if this, this book tells a little bit of the story, it pushes a little flesh onto that story of what we're seeing in the world today. So I'll stop there. Thanks very much. Um. I want to make sure that everybody has a chance to ask some questions because you all took time out of your busy day um, to say that, so uh, or to, to come here. I just want to make a, a quick observation, which is that in my in my job um, as a as a historian and as a teacher, um, one thing that I'm always trying to communicate with students is that my view of, of history is really that there's an inner it's an interplay between these big arcs and these big events and and institutions and processes and the individual. And, and neither one makes any sense without the other. And so one thing that I really uh, enjoyed about Scott's book is it really puts a lot of, I mean, you, that last thing you said about flesh, really puts a lot of flesh onto these processes in, in China and what, it, what that means in the lives of individuals. When we hear about opening, reform and opening, when we hear about the Great Leap Forward, when we hear about the Cultural Revolution, when you hear about going back even earlier to um, the, the kind of overseas migration in the, early, in the late 19th and early 20th century, what that looks like from an individual point of view. Um, I have questions to ask, but I'd kind of like to open it up to the audience first, and, and I'm happy to, to join in uh, with some of those as we go on. So would anyone like to start us off? There in the back, please. I'm Bill Armbruster, retired journalist. Um, two questions, very simple. Um, first of all, you referred to the Chinese and Enlightenment. What, what period of time was that? And secondly, why did your uncle change his surname? Okay. Um, <clears throat> before and after a, a, a period in history called the uh, kind of the May Fourth era of 1919 oh, right. is what you know some historians and they, they certainly see it a certain way. They they, they often describe this period. Uh, turn of the century, uh, early 1900s, as, as uh, they described as an enlightenment period when China came late to a lot of these uh, kind of the concepts of modernity. My uncle, um, he eventually took his mother's surname uh, during, the, during the Cultural Revolution. 
when they thought it, uh, and, sh and when they thought it might protect him a little bit um, and to be associated with her rather than these relatives uh, overseas. So, uh, in the end, didn't do much for him, but he still goes by that by that surname, and he he certainly still has um, some strong feelings about the father who abandoned him and left him behind, so he stayed with that surname. And where is he living now? Shanghai. So he grew up in Changzhou, just up the uh, just up the river, and he uh, uh, he married a woman from from Shanghai. And as the story goes, she's the boss. <laughs> sure. And let's keep the habit going of identifying yourself when you uh, when you have a question to ask. So please. Uh, my name is Sue Williams. Um, I just want to do some, and I'm a filmmaker. So I just wondered. And so when did your family come to the states? I'm just trying to. And how do you end up here? Yeah, um, so I was born here. So my my uh, my father uh, grew up in in Taiwan and went to university there. Went to the military there, and uh, so he came to the states in the early '60s. My mother kind of left mainland China as a refugee to Hong Kong, and she went to the to the British school system there. And they met in the most logical place, Minnesota. <laughs> And uh, at, at uh, well, my dad went to the University of Minnesota. My mom went to Augsburg College. So a lot of kind of church connections there. And and you know, back in the '60s, the only place where an electrical engineer wanted to work was for IBM. So I was born in Poughkeepsie, New York. Please, sir. Uh, Chris Merck. Um, I'm long retired. I'm just I'm interested to know. Uh, the they tell you he's lived in China, Hong Kong, and Taiwan. <laughs> Where I was once interviewed by Mr. Tong. Yeah. <laughs> Over the telephone, though. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm curious to know when you left the, the bureau chief job in Shanghai, uh -huh. what was the period when you were actually working on the book? Did they overlap, or was that a subsequent project? I started it after I, I returned. So I left in 2010. So I was in Shanghai from 2006 to 2010. Okay. And, um, I think I really started thinking about this book project, trying to put it together about five years ago. So it, it was uh, long in conception and selling, and about two years in the, in the writing. So. And another specific question: Are you in any relation <coughs> to uh, Tong Shikang, who was no. the librarian at Princeton? No, no. Uh, um, would be a good story, <laughs> but no. He's a famous man. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, I've forgotten your name. <laughs> uh, so I'm interested in hearing, like Susan. Okay, uh, Jan Barris, National Committee on U.S. Translations. I'm interested in fleshing out more of your family story. So you had this great grandfather who left, went to Japan, came back with a Japanese wife. So I'd like to know. What happened between the Chinese wife and the Japanese wife? And <laughs> the village took sides with whom? And what difference that made in terms of the way the rest of the village looked at them? Uh -huh. But then, what happened? Did there did his children from either his first wife or his second wife did did anybody else go abroad other than your father? Was anybody else at any point? And and how you say the the um, relative. Um, prominence and, and of your family at one point uh -huh. because they were the scholars and the intellectuals they were once quite high yeah. and prominent in the village and then that changed 
And so how did that affect their relationships with each other, with their people abroad, with the other people in the village, mm -hmm. et cetera? So okay. just more about... Yeah. Um, so, so the Japanese side is, is my side. So the Japanese wife is my great-grandmother. Uh, and when you go to China, you learn quickly that when you tell them you're part Japanese, the conversation doesn't doesn't go anywhere. So it's never <laughs> helpful to say that. Um, uh, so they came back, and the, the came back to they, they they came back briefly to the village. So my great grandfather and this Japanese wife came back, and uh, so she was shunned by just about everyone in the village. It turned out, as the story goes through, she she learned Chinese, spoke it quite well was never really welcomed there. And um, so at a certain point, she she went back. Scott, what year did they go, and what year did they come back, just roughly, so just can situate it? They came back in 19... My grandfather was born in, uh, in Japan in 1911. I think they came back in 1913, okay. so, so it, um, right around then. And they were in the village for a little. My great-grandfather studied law. So then he moved at a certain at a certain point. She was with him, and then she went back. He be, he moved to Nanjing, and he became a big city lawyer. So he he kind of left the village, and then she left the village too. He came back toward the end of his life uh, to. Um, uh, so he was the only one who whose branch got out early. You know, he was kind of the first mover. To, to go somewhere, um, and much of the, so he still occupies this story in the village. He's one of the early ones who, who got out and kind of went somewhere. Um, so he became an intellectual, and uh, he, he became a lawyer, and he taught law, and then his son, my grandfather, became uh, a legal uh, law professor as well. In Nanjing? In Nanjing. And he, taught at the university where the president was Chiang Kai-shek. So then, um, during the Japanese occupation, they, they went out to the southwest, and my father was born there. So my father was born in 39 in, in Chongqing. Um, and then they, um, you know, after the war was over, they, they went back. So, so our tongs kind of separated from the village uh, from then on, and, and there wasn't a lot of connection, connection to that. What we learned is after after liberation, you know, the, the former scholars, um, they so my closest relative there, he died soon after I, I, I met him. Um, he had esophagus cancer. <coughs> his life is full of tragedies, but his father starved to death during the famine, and in a way he died the same way. I uh, starved to death. And his um, his daughters kind of tell the story of how even today there are still these these splits. Village. So even today, the, the elders, the party secretary in the village, you know, they talk about um, enforcing the one-child policy uh, on, on, on their mother and how. Um, so what's what was fascinating and, and kind of challenging the process was that these cultural revolution politics in this little kind of forlorn, unimportant place were still playing out there today. Just my, so your father, your great-grandfather went to Nanjing mm -hmm. without the Chinese wife and without the Japanese wife because she had already left to go to well, she, was, she joined him in Nanjing. Uh, 
without either one. <laughs> There's a rumor of another one, which you know, never uh, chase, can't ever chase all the stories down. Um, so uh, yes, the the first wife has uh, you know, that side of the family, which is all. Uh, and did you meet any of them? Now. Are they are they still in the village? Uh, they're um, not in the village anymore. So as a measure of of well-being, the you know those who are still there, um, you know their, their lives are the worst, and, and so a lot of people connected to us, including this cousin, are still are still there. Question for go ahead. Um, Donald Camp, I'm a retired Foreign Service officer who served in China. Um, uh, in a quick skim of this book in the 15 minutes before you started talking, I noticed that you've taken the story to a the next generation. You have an adoption mm -hmm. story. Uh, I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. I'm, I'm the father of an adopted child um, as well, so I'm kind of curious your story. It, it was, um, it's, a, it's quite a before and after story of learning about the Chinese adoption system. So my, my uh, my wife, uh, her siblings are all adopted. She's, she's not ethnic Chinese, she's from Toledo, Ohio. And, but her siblings are all adopted. It became something she wanted to do in, in the course of her life. And, and she talked me into it. And it, one way to, to sell it to my parents, who you know, we had a biological child, and they, they couldn't find any kind of compelling rationale to adopt, um, was to uh, out in China, and at the time, you know, early 2000s, there was a lot of that happening at the time. So we adopted my daughter. Uh, she was born in 2003 in Hunan province, and we went to get her at the age of one in 2004. And we went through the process, and um, we really trusted the integrity of, of the process. Uh, we had people go through this. We had this home study, and we were deciding what countries to to consider, and the woman who uh, who was contracted to do the, do the home study, she would kind of talk about these different options, and it's an industry. And the way she described the Chinese system was, you know, it's financially predictable, and the children tend to be healthy, and there aren't a lot of surprises, you know, and it tends to work out very well. It's like she was describing a Toyota. You know, it's reliable. Um, and so we bought into that. Um, after we went to, after we moved to China a couple years after that, um, uh, I, I did a story and I interviewed a, a convicted baby cell. What we learned is at the time when we were in Hunan uh, going through the process, there was this big scandal going on in the public. And this, um, there was a man whose family was in the middle of these transactions and they, most of the family members were thrown in jail and convicted of of, uh, of selling babies to the orf to orphanages uh, that were part of the international adoption program, and as as he was telling the story, um, the economics seemed to make sense that people like us, all of all these American dollars at the time it was three thousand U.S. dollars that went to the orphanage, um, they you know in economic terms they were kind of. You know that money was chasing babies, and it just totally distorted the local economy. And um, um, families like these found a way, and orphanages found a way to. It was a supply chain, um, and what what this family was convicted of, and as they told the story, is they either found or bought uh, 
perhaps abandoned babies from Guangdong province, uh, transported them up by train so that you know some of the women in the family were carrying five or six babies at a time on the train, and they brought them up uh, to uh, to a number of uh, Hunan orphanages that were approved in the international adoption program, um, and. Uh, so the people who stood there to make the most money were the orphanages. Um, to, there were actually receipts for some of these transactions, how much the orphanages um, um, paid in transportation expenses for these children. And then the, the profit margin as it were, was remarkable uh, then. So you know, in, in retrospect, I wonder why we were so kind of untrusting of Chinese products and Chinese pet food uh, in the dollar store and yet so trusting of the Chinese adoption system. Um, I don't know, and, and how representative was that? At, at, at least the incentives um, make sense, made sense at the time when, when there was so much of this going on, at the, going on at the time. And now my daughter's 14, so we're talking, you know, we're telling the story to her uh, a little bit, and you know, how to talk about it, we're still kind of working, working that out ourselves. Margaret. Margaret, I found one of the most interesting chapters of the book is about your maternal grandfather and how he almost literally unearthed his history. Can you talk about that? Yeah. Um, this is a part of, this is my mother's father. And uh, so he was convicted as a collaborator. Uh, he worked for a couple years in the early 40s for the Japanese occupation of China. And uh, so, so I didn't. I'm sorry, this is the son of your great grandfather's oh, uh, Japanese uh, wife? Very confusing. Uh, other side of the family. Other family. Yeah, other oh, side that's of right, because that was yeah. your father. Was, okay. um, so yeah, sorry. a lot to keep track of. And, um, so my maternal grandfather, um, he. Uh, we we learned and, and we found out when he when he served and we when he was convicted um, that he worked from 1940 to 1942 or so. That was you know the Japanese that was during the Japanese occupation of China, which where it began in, in uh, for, you know for for um, much of the Chinese mainland started in 1937, um, and it was during a period in the war when there seemed like there could, could have been a prolonged occupation then. Right? The, the Americans obviously hadn't entered the war yet. Um, and when we f first started chasing the story, my mom, my mom said, you know, I don't, I don't want you to write any of this in a book because it's shameful and it's embarrassing and, you know, I expect <coughs> a little editorial veto power. <laughs> and I granted it to her. I said, okay. Um, and then we found a lot of interesting, and then we got, got a, a bunch of the facts and the information and the story. You know, it's such a, um, one historian named uh, Timothy Brooke has written about collaboration. And he, I think he puts it really well. He says it, 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 it's this loaded term. It imposes its moral map over a political terrain. So it immediately takes on this kind of moral, moral and ethical dimension to it to think about it. And then what we learned about the time and my grandfather you know, sudden, suddenly um, made it a, a lot more uh, nuanced and a lot more gray. 
So he was working for the division of the government that was feeding the people, uh, the locals during the occupation. And we learned that he was able to return to his hometown and to take care of his mother, who was a widow, and take care of his sister-in-law, who was a widow, and her children. So he was able to provide for his, uh, provide for his family. And we spoke to a couple historians there um, who say, similar to France, uh, the, the Vichy France in World War II, the idea that there were a few collaborators and the majority of resistors, most people, he said, the evidence doesn't fit that. You know, that, that, that this occupation was a lot more complicated than, uh, than you might think. And there were a lot of different reasons he explained to us uh, why people would collaborate. And he would kind of, uh, like a lot of, you know, kind of Chinese intellectuals, they start counting on the fingers. And he said, um, you know, some of the collaborators, a small percentage of collaborators were ideologically aligned with the Japanese. Many of them were fooled or tricked into doing it. Some of them were blackmailed or threatened into doing it. Some of them needed to, to feed their families, you know, in, in order to, uh, to, to survive. Then he said, and at the time in the fog of war, some, some people um, chose a side. And if you choose the winning side, you're a partner. And if you choose the losing side, you're a stooge. And at the time, you don't know how it's going to turn out. Um, so I, he, he, he was convicted, and, and he went to a prison in Shanghai for a little bit. Tian Chao is a kind of uh, notorious jail in, uh, in, in Shanghai. And then he went to one of the labor camps in Qinghai, northwestern China. And he, he went at the time when they, they weren't even built yet. So the prisoners probably built a lot of the roads that led to the camps at the time in the, in the, early, in the early 50s then. Um, found a lot of documents about his arrest and his, and, uh, his conviction, but not about, uh, couldn't find anything specific to, to the camp where we think he, what we think he went. Um, but the, the great moment was there were a lot of people who, who actually said, what, wanted to help me find this story. And I think if I, if I went as a journalist, they, they would have closed their doors, they wouldn't help. But when I went as this grandson of China, uh, they were uh, a lot of, one man who used to work in the prison department, he kind of snuck me into the records room, and they tried to find some of the papers. Um, and one of the women who worked in the records department said, well, you're not going to find anything. A lot of the records are gone, especially in the early days of these prison camps. You know, those, those records are mostly, those don't exist anymore. But what I recommend, because a lot of Chinese families are kind of going through this, who've had family members in the Gulag, is you uh, can go to the, one of the mass grave sites and scoop up a little bit of the soil and bring it back and symbolically um, bury and remember, have a place where you can remember that person. So, uh, so we did that and that's, um, uh, so he, we have a place to remember him now and, and what's interesting is, is how many Chinese families are kind of going through this as well because as you know, most people who went to the labor camps, they didn't, they didn't return. Scott and I spoke about this a little bit in the interview we did just before we came in here, and one in the podcast that we encourage you to listen. But one thing, because um, I've also written about this period, and I've written about a, a Buddhist monk who operated a temple actually during the Japanese occupation. And one of the things I found really um, useful in thinking about it was was from uh, Václav Havel, the, the former president of Czechoslovakia and Czech Republic, who wrote a lot about 
about the power of the powerless and the notion of collaboration and what you do under a regime that is something that you're morally opposed to. And the way he put it um, was that the line between collaboration and resistance, we tend to think of it as a line that goes between people. I'm a collaborator and you're a resistor, and there's a line between it, and we just put them there. The way Havel put it is that that line doesn't run between people, it runs through them. Um, and that everybody who has to live in a regime is making choices about how they're going to live under that regime. And I, again, I, I think that we talk about the adoption, or you talk about the going out during the 19th century, you talk about the, um, the Great Leap Forward, you talk about the Northern Expedition, here you talk about this, this collaboration period. Um, it puts a, putting a human face, to borrow another Czech um, phrase, um, putting a human face on what it was like to go through those times. So I, I find this really, really compelling for trying to understand how it is people made these choices that in the abstract you look at is very, like how do people make these choices? And it becomes very clear how they, they do. Really, really, really difficult. I mean, it's, it's the, they, they go through them, but you understand why they make those choices. There is a new book out by uh, a historian at the University of Michigan, Charles Bright. Um, his grandfather was a missionary in China at the time. And during the Japanese occupation, you know, he, he, he was seen as a collaborator eventually as well because. He was trying to update his his uh, family back in they were either back in Shanghai or back in um, in the states. So he was running a university in Hangzhou, uh, in in, the, uh, in eastern China, and he needed to make friends with the with the Japanese, to so they would carry his letters back. You know, so and he does write about this kind of challenging question of how close to to be to these. You know, these so-called occupiers, but you know, there was a lot of humanity in those, in those stories. I think, so, I think yeah. it's real cool, quick, humanity. Yes, sir. Uh, Bob and Bailey Center, I'm looking for insight to marriage. Uh, how did China become so successful uh, in capitalism when they were used to the iron rice bowl? And number two, do you see a time in the future where China can be more democracy? <laughs> Easy question. I'll let you take that one. Yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll take the first one. <laughs> um, when I talk to historians about this question, I, I find it really interesting. Is they talk a lot about um, Islam antecedents uh, of, of um, a few a few things that I think are part of China today. This um, kind of some describe it as market logic and market thinking. Uh, they're there was a lot of kind of distribution of labor quite early on in, in Chinese history. Um, uh, part of it was connected to the to the canal. I mean, centuries ago, the grain prices across China were, were quite similar. You know, suggesting that there was a, a, a pretty efficient market way back then. So I think market logic, um, the legacy of human capital, um, is, is one that is, it's not unique to China, but not. Not all countries can can, uh, can tap into that. I think that's part of it. Um, when I talk to people looking at a more kind of contemporary period, what they say was missing during the late imperial China was um, um, there was not, not enough kind of uh, fiscal ammunition, you know, to be able to kind of push government programs, and there wasn't enough of a concerted vision uh, for uh, you know for where the policymakers wanted to take it. And so I think the, the the Communist Party gets a lot of credit for the vision of reform and opening and staying with it, and uh, using a strong central government to um, uh, um, 
to uh, to kind of push this, you know, consistently. So I um, there are some people who who kind of look at the story and and derive more cultural factors. Um, I don't really see it that way. Those make a little bit less sense to me than uh, than kind of incentives and, and some of these uh, broader concepts. Will democracy come to to China? Um, early on, when I was uh, in my my adult life, you know, the great mistake that I recall was when President Clinton said an economic opening is going to lead to political opening. And then you know, James Mann wrote this book describing that as a fantasy. Um, so I, I, um, I don't think many people are, uh, can kind of connect the dots in a way who, who see a clear, you know, a clear path in that direction. I mean, I, um, I, you know, I don't, I don't expect it in the next, you know, uh, you know in the next generation or so. It, it, it may be a surprise, but I, I certainly think that this kind of unique experiment, this, uh, you know, authoritarian regime and economic, uh, and this extraordinary economic growth, you know, both are true. Yes, sir. Oh yeah. And um, I'm wondering if you could eliminate uh, uh, with regards to uh, Chinese enlightenment and and the, the desire to reach America. What, what did you find in the letters uh, that eliminates the life of your grandmother and um, what Chinese? Uh -huh. Attitudes toward the missionaries that were there. Is that related the history of? They were the letters of a of a young adult who was fascinated by 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 America. Um, they in the curriculum they they read a Doll's House, you know, uh, she this great feminist work, and they uh, she she learned piano. She loved music actually. She loved classical music. She became the Companies to the Glee Club. They had a Glee Club in 1921, um, and so she had a pretty um, clean, maybe not very nuanced sense of the promise of, of America. That's the story that I think she heard, and that's the story that she told herself that that was um, the place where she wanted to go. So that was one thing that that was clear from the from the letters. Uh, the other was um, she was always broke. And always asking the Americans for help, uh, it, and and so uh, she she borrowed money all the time. You know, she was kind of betting on herself. She she didn't. Eventually, her daughter had to pay off. My mom had to pay off some of her debts. But uh, continuous financial problems, uh, and then she didn't know about the politics of her husband. So when he was arrested and convicted, it came as a big surprise to her uh, because she didn't know much of that much of that story as well. Um, she also talked in a few letters about, you know, maybe what I'm doing or what my classmates are doing can be part of uh, kind of developing a strong China. You know, so we now and maybe we can do our little part to 
to make China strong. So. What are you doing in Beijing? I mean, that's very close to Beijing, between Beijing and Tianjin. Um, she was, her family was living there. So this letter was written. Um, she is going on vacation after her, um, in 1920, and she was taking the train with one of her teachers, and she was getting up in Beijing where her, where her, where her parents lived, and the teacher was kind of going on to to uh, to Peking at the time. So her parents were living her parents were living there at the time, and we we don't know much of the story about why they were living there at the time, except they were in the silk business, and uh, so they, they. But it doesn't, you know. Later on, they were in the silk business in uh, kind of industrial Wuhan, which makes more sense. Um, so what they were doing, not really sure why they were there, but she, in some of these letters, the, another thing she mentioned is the uh, kind of the instability of the warlords. So the warlord uh, Wu Peifu comes in, in and out of her story many, many times. And so when she back, went back uh, to see her family in northern China, she said there was this kind of siege, a number of people died, but it's okay. Those of us who were inside the walls survived and we're doing, we're doing okay. Um, beyond that, don't don't know. Uh, it's don't know interesting because Baoding is where Ding Xian is, where John Buck did a tremendous amount mm -hmm. of sociological mm -hmm. work in the 1930s, and where the first Chinese social scientist, American social scientist, allowed to work in China, returned mm -hmm. and wrote four books on Chinese beliefs, whatever. I mean, that that series of three books over a period of about 30 years, mm -hmm. and it's, it's, it's so it's a it's a place where there is quite a lot of. American and other foreign sociological and, and mm -hmm. political science research that has been done over a period of at least 50 years. Yeah, and, and the, the specific connections uh, in my case, I, I don't know what those are. So, yeah. Margaret, you want back? Yeah, um, nobody else has questions. Two brief ones. First, I assume that I know your parents have read the book. And I wonder how they reacted. Mm -hmm. And second, is there anything afoot to publish a Chinese edition? My parents read a number of drafts, so um, I really uh, ran by them the question of, well, are, are there parts of this you wouldn't you wouldn't put in parts of family history that you don't think belong? Um, they didn't come back with any, but but I, I kind of put that to them. So they, they read a number of, of other drafts, which is, this is a project that I worked on with them together. Um, the publisher is the University of Chicago Press, and they've said if there's enough interest, um, then they'll pursue that, you know, they'll pursue a Chinese language version of it. So that's the great, I mean, that that's, the aspiration is, uh, I think, it, you know, it would be uh, a familiar but important story to share with uh, with the Chinese reading audience. So, uh, would like to get there, but not yet. Yeah, one more, one more big question. Uh, the the interesting thing about case studies is always the extent to which you can generalize about them. And if you look at these, um, it's a fairly bleak history, actually looking at what happened to your grandparents, what happened to your parents, what happened to the 
the story of your daughter's adoption and the, so if you if you're gonna going to take this my my question is how much do you think you can generalize <coughs> from the experience of your family to a description of Chinese society today and its potential in terms of uh, the integrity of civil society, the, mm-hmm. the morality of the place, the likelihood that Xi Jinping's project will work or not work, or I mean, is is this? Can you generalize from this, or are we really looking at a very specific story that you'd be reluctant to generalize from? Uh, yeah, I don't want to overdo it, uh, for for sure. Um, I think what. What I find interesting is, kind of, despite um, the policies coming from Beijing and, and the, in certain ways, kind of closing, you know, closing the market off to foreign competition and choosing national champions and kind of raising the important question of is it, uh, you know, how how willing is it to to be a global citizen? At the regular person level, I still. It's, it's so often where people still want to either, my old landlady in Shanghai said, well, of all my friends, we either have our, our children or our money in, in North America. So it's I think- It's not a vote of confidence. Uh, well- um, Or is it? Would you, would you describe that as a vote of confidence in China's future, or would you say, I th- think these are people who are looking, you know, Chao Tuyo San Ku kind of thing? I think it's a vote for, um, for opening uh, and um, similar to to what some of these uh, these letters had that that the uh, realizing that that people you know that these uh, people and ideas and money need to kind of flow um, and in the one of the takeaways I think from the people in my family is is when that's when that's happened, there have been great opportunities, and I still see that. I still see that today. The, the great difference between seeing kind of this <coughs> kind of Beijing-centric view of China, and, and at least my experience with people on the ground, is uh, is still it's a very different story. You know, there's there's great there's great contrast, and I, I guess if if it is a vote um, for anything, it is a, it is a, a vote to kind of. Keep the bridges open, you know, for individual opportunistic reasons. What what I found about it, and I found it to be pretty compelling, is that I don't I don't know that it is a vote of confidence, but I think it's a vote of um, responsibility. Like I found the the idea that this book isn't it, it's not one that presents like this triumphalist narrative that like opening to the world everything's gonna be solved. But it's also I, I don't I don't know if I think it's that bleak either. Um, because I think, I mean, in some ways, God is the last chapter, right? And you're, and you're here, um, telling, you know, the story and going back and meeting people. And, and we've talked about the adoption scandal or whatever is going on there, and about the, the death in the in the in the gulag, presumably. But you have other relatives who are who are thriving um, through how it's going. So I think it's it's very contingent. And so to me, and maybe I'm, I'm well, I know I'm reading it because I can only read it from the present. Um, I think it's a really um, compelling plea in some way 
that people, whether it's in the United States or in China and other places, need to be very vigilant about the need to open borders, about the need to um, pay attention to political responsibilities, about the need to take their economic responsibilities seriously. Because in the same way that the people in the 19th and 20th century assumed everything was going to open, and then all of a sudden it slammed shut, and some people kind of squeezed through the cracks and other people's got squished, um, I think in the 21st century, we're looking at many, I mean, you talk about this, about the raising of drawbridges, and I think the, the people who in China for the past 30 years have now been saying, oh, everything is opening and things are going to continue in the same way, there's no guarantee that that's going to be the case either. Um, but I think it's, I, I think there's not a, a lesson there. Um, there's not a lesson there. There are many lessons there that I think can go in different ways. That, that's what I kind of took away from it, that I don't know if, I don't know if you can generalize one lesson from it. I certainly can't yet. I mean, I've, I've read it, you know, one and a half times and, and looking at it and talking about it. But I think it does, to me, it, it resonates. I mean, everybody in this room has experience in China. Um, and to me, it resonates very clearly. Like these, these feel very real characters that I think... Well, the one character yeah. that we haven't talked about and don't have to go into that length is, is my uncle's son, my cousin. You know, he's part of uh, this me generation. He's in his 30s. With the Buick. Uh, with the Buick and, you know, the, the, the sleeker laptop than I have and the, the, the bigger, more sophisticated camera than I have. And, and so um, he's a, you know, a picture of this, of the complicated picture of this um, kind of redemption story uh, that, that China is seeing now. Uh, I haven't talked about it as much this evening, but, uh, yeah, I guess I don't see it as... <laughs> Uniformly bleak, but you know my mom always says, you know, the Chinese movies always end sad for a reason. <laughs> <laughs> um, we have not ended sad, I hope, but we've ended. No. We've reached seven o'clock. Um, but I want to thank you all really very much for coming, and I want to thank Scott for sharing a very personal and. Uh, thank you.